chapter 3, please. This morning we asked a question. What does it mean to be blessed by God? It's an important question. It's an important question because the Jews in the book of Malachi had lost sight of the truth of God's word concerning the nature of physical blessing in this life and the nature of eternal spiritual blessing through righteousness. They had been equating God's favor, as you recall, with the blessings of physical abundance, of material plenty. And therefore, they drew a conclusion. The conclusion was that God's favor was upon the wicked. When we follow this misunderstanding, this false conclusion to its logical end, it can only be then that there is no benefit to living a life of personal righteousness, because... God's favor is not dependent upon our actions. God's favor is upon the wicked, just as it is upon some righteous. Now we know that that's false. We saw that this morning. Our first point of our first warning, as it were, was that material prosperity is not an indication of God's favor. We learned that. We found that. We saw that. That we do not need to be materially prosperous in order to still have the favor of God, the spiritual blessing of God, that they are two distinct entities. We mentioned, I mentioned, and I'll mention again, Matthew 5.45, Jesus Christ reminds us that God maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. And so it is. But there are two sides to every coin. As the proverb goes, as the statement goes, we see that God's material blessing is not necessarily an indication of spiritual favor or spiritual blessing. But we need to be reminded of a second thing, as did Israel, a second warning. And that's a warning that God picks up in Malachi 1, or 3 1, excuse me. He's still right on the same vein of what he was talking about in Malachi 2.17. And this warning is this, and this will be our second point, and the first point of this evening, the second point of this series. Don't forget that judgment begins at the house of God. First, don't forget that material blessing, material abundance, material prosperity is not an indication of God's favor. Second, don't forget that judgment begins at the house of God. Say, Pastor, what do you quite mean by that? Well, that's what I'm preaching on tonight, so you're in luck. Let's talk about it together. Let's read it together first, then let's talk about it. We'll read again, Malachi 2.17 to 3.6. Excuse me, Malachi 2.17. Ye have wearied the Lord with your words, yet ye say, wherein have we wearied him? When ye say, everyone that doeth evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and and he delighteth in them. Or, where is the God of judgment? Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant, whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. But who may abide the day of his coming? And who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like fuller's soap. And he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. Then shall the offering of Judah and Jerusalem be pleasant unto the Lord as in the days of old, 
as in former years. And I will come near to you to judgment. And I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers and against false swearers and against those that oppress the hireling in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, and that turn aside the stranger from his right. And fear not me, saith the Lord of hosts, for I am the Lord. I change not. Therefore ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. While Israel was busy slandering, misrepresenting the character of God concerning the prosperity of the wicked, they, the people of Israel, the people of Judah, the Jews, had overlooked their own responsibility to serve and obey God. We've seen that throughout the book of Malachi, that they, the priests specifically, as well as the entire nation of Judah, the city of Jerusalem, had been quite careless in their worship of God. They had done it improperly. They had become very cold in their worship. Their worship did not please God. It was secondhand worship. It was worship with improper motives. And so, in answer to their question from Malachi 2.17, where is the God of judgment? God reminds them of something. He reminds them that judgment is coming. And he reminds them in this vein. Maybe you should get your eyes, Judah, off of others and start worrying about yourself. Have you ever recognized the tendency in our own heart to get so busy worrying about others and their sin and their unrighteousness and thinking about how God should be judging others that we fail to remember, to recognize that God will as well judge us? That we fail to remember that God's eyes are upon our actions, just like God's eyes are upon the actions of those in our community, of those in this state, of those in Washington who lead us as rulers. God's eyes are upon us, just like his eyes are upon them. In fact, this is more than just a trend. It is human nature, is it not? One of the most prevalent ways that we as humans try to overlook our own sin is by turning our eyes to the sins of others. By judging others, we feel better about ourselves. By placing ourselves in the judgment seat, our spirits somehow feel less accountable for our own sin. And so Judah laments and they say, God has his favor upon the wicked. Where is the God of judgment? And God's answer is, I'm coming. The God of judgment is coming. Christ, as he walked upon this earth, would give us warnings against this kind of a heart. The kind of a heart that would be looking out towards others while failing to judge ourselves. Matthew 7 is a very common one. Let me read you a few verses from Matthew 7. Judge not that ye be not judged, for with what judgment ye judge... Ye shall be judged, and with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. And why beholdest thou the mote, small speck, that is in thy brother's eye, but consider not the beam that is in thine own eye? Or how wilt thou say to thy brother, Let me pull out the mote out of thine eye, and behold, a beam is in thine own eye, thou hypocrite. First cast out the beam out of thine own eye. 
And then shalt thou see clearly to cast out the moat out of thy brother's eye, Matthew 7, 1 through 5. It's not speaking of not judging per se, but Jesus Christ saying, how dare you judge another man when you have those own sins in your own life? And I believe that's the spirit with which God is speaking to the people of Jerusalem and Malachi. You're asking for the God of judgment? Do you realize what you're asking? Do you understand the implications of you desiring the God of judgment to come? Are you sure you're ready for that judgment? You're asking God to judge them. Do you realize that he'll come and judge everyone? Paul would reiterate this thought in Romans chapter 2. Let me read you verses 1 through 11. In Romans 2, Paul is speaking specifically to Jews here. A warning that he gives to the Jews. Listen to what he says. Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest. For wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself. For thou that judgest doest the same thing. But we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. And thinkest thou, O man, that judgest them which do such things and doeth the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God? Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? But after thy hardness and impenitent heart treasures up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteousness, righteous judgment of God, excuse me, who will render to every man according to his deeds, to them who by patient continuance and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality eternal life. But unto them that are contentious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath, tribulation, and anguish upon every soul of man that doeth evil, of the Jew first and also of the Gentile, but glory, honor, and peace to every man that worketh good to the Jew first and also to the Gentile, for there is no respect of persons with God. Now God is not speaking of work salvation, or Paul is not preaching work salvation there, nor is he preaching that a man can lose his salvation based upon his works. What he's saying is writing to a group of Jews who believe that the law has been the foundation of their faith. The very thing that they were holding on to here in Malachi 2, 17 through 3, 6, that because God has chosen them to be some peculiar people, they are beyond judgment. They are exempt from judgment, perhaps. And Paul says, Thou art inexcusable, O man. You that judge others according to this law that you can't even keep yourself. You that judge others when you do the same. You that call others sinners when you in fact are a sinner as well. That is the spirit with which God will be stepping into Malachi 3, 1 through 6. We must guard against this tendency in our own heart because as we will see... God's judgment is coming not just to a select few, but to all men. And as we will see in Malachi 3, God's judgment begins at his own people. So God promises that judgment is coming. Notice what he says in verse 1. Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. He promises to send his messenger to prepare the way for the coming to his temple. Before we seek to understand the specific promises of particularly Malachi 3.1, let's remind ourselves of the nature of prophecy so that we can understand what God is telling his people. There are two prophecies in this particular verse, and in order to understand them, let's understand prophecy. 
The prophetic ministry was a ministry as a contemporary messenger. The prophet was a messenger for the day in which he lived. He had a message for them on that day. His primary purpose was to give God's people direction and instruction from God. That was the prophet's primary role. That was Malachi's primary role was for the people of that day to get them to turn their hearts unto God. The prophet of God would come saying, Thus saith the Lord. Thus saith Jehovah God. And God's people were expected when they heard that catchphrase, Thus saith the Lord. God's people were expected to listen and obey the word of God through the man of God. But there was a danger to this system. The danger to this system was that any man could decide to say, Thus saith the Lord. And he could give whatever message he felt like regardless of whether God had sent him or God had not sent him. And so God built into the office of the prophet some protections, as it were. Two tests of validity he gives in Deuteronomy in regard to the prophet. The first test was in Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 5. If a prophet arose doing signs and wonders that came to pass, so his signs and his wonders came to pass, but his message did not agree with the written word of God, he was to be rejected and he was to be stoned. The second test was found in Deuteronomy 18.22. If a prophet arose speaking in the name of the Lord and his sign or prophecy did not come to pass, then he was a false prophet as well. And he was to be dealt with according to the punishment for false prophets. And so when a prophet came with a message that agreed with the word of God and he did miracles, signs, wonders and gave prophetic um, declarations that would come to pass, each one of these signs, wonders and prophecies was a validation of his ministry and the message for the people of God that day and as it would continue into the future. As I mentioned, we find in Malachi 3, 1, 2 prophecies. The first prophecy was about a man who would prepare the way before the Lord. God designates this man as my messenger. Now, coincidentally or not, the Hebrew word for my messenger is the word Malachi. That's why some people believe that this was an anonymous book. They don't believe that it was a book written by a man named Malachi. They believe it was written by a man named My Messenger. Or that the book was themed around the theme, My Messenger. And so it was titled after this man. This messenger that would come. I do not agree. I believe that his name reflected his message. But I believe that there was in fact a man named Malachi who wrote the book. But that's, we've already talked about that. Nor is it extremely necessary one way or the other what we believe on that this messenger's appearance and ministry was to be the sign to God's people that God himself was coming to his temple we'll look more closely at the specific ministry of this forerunner as we get farther along in the book of Malachi it'll come up again in Malachi 4 but those of us who have followed along in our John series are familiar with who this man is we're familiar with the concepts already as I have presented them Recall we mentioned that the role as forerunner was partially fulfilled by John the Baptist. However, we also had mentioned, made it clear, that prophecy, this prophecy, as well as the prophecy 
that would come of Jesus Christ were only partially fulfilled the first time around. Matthew 17, 11, Jesus Christ says, John the Baptist is the one that should come. He is the one who would come in the spirit and power of Elijah. But as we look at the prophecies of the forerunner, we recognize that he did not fulfill all the prophecies. He did not fulfill it in its entirety. How could this be? Well, we'll understand that John's ministry was probably not a complete fulfillment of this prophecy of forerunner, just as Christ's first coming was not a complete fulfillment, but rather these were both the first of two fulfillments. The first being an incomplete fulfillment of a complete fulfillment that would come later down the road. We saw this in Daniel. Antiochus Epiphanes being the more uh, contemporary fulfillment of the Antichrist one day. John the Baptist being the first fulfillment of perhaps another forerunner one day. Jesus Christ's first advent being a fulfillment of some prophecy of Messiah though the complete fulfillment will be yet future. So we see this concept of dual prophecy come up quite often in Scripture. As a matter of fact, some have gone so far as to say that every prophecy had a dual fulfillment in Scripture. I have not found substantiation for that in full, but it might be something that you could do your own study on if you're curious. With that said, we'll get a little bit more into John the Baptist in the weeks to come in Malachi. Let's Look at the second prophecy in this verse. He says, And the Lord, whom ye seek, shall suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in, behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. In this prophecy, it is promised that following the ministry of God's messenger, my messenger, the Lord himself will suddenly come to his temple. The word suddenly in the Hebrew literally means with suddenness or surprisingly. God's coming to his temple would be paved by his messenger. There would be a laying of the groundwork by the messenger that would come, but he would still come with the element of surprise. Just like the prophecy of God's messenger, we recognize that there has only been a partial fulfillment of this. The messenger of the covenant has come. Jesus Christ, God in flesh, has come. But even as we think about the prophecy that he will come suddenly to his temple, that rings more true of his second coming, does it not, than his first coming. And so while the messenger of the covenant has come, and by the way, Israel did not delight in him the first time he came, did they? And so we see that this prophecy has only been partially fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ through his first advent. Now, as we think of the spirit of Judah at this time, as we think of the message of these prophecies, we can imagine that the Jews would have looked upon the prophecies of Malachi 3.1 quite positively. Israel's answer to this promise might have been something like, well, it's about time the messenger is coming. It's about time the messenger of the covenant is on his way. Good, the wicked will finally get what's coming to them. But as God continues in Malachi 3, he will make it very clear that his context in which he's announcing judgment has nothing to do with the wicked of the Gentile nations and everything to do with him coming in judgment of his own people. 
Notice what he says in verse 2. But who may abide in the day of his coming? That's the messenger of the covenant. And who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fire. And like fuller's soap. God's coming should bring fear to their hearts. Not anticipation. God is telling Israel that they will receive no special treatment when he comes. That just because they have been his particular nation of blessing. Does not mean that they will be exempt from his righteous judgments. Many years earlier the prophet Amos would say something to Israel. Note the words that Amos would say to Israel in Amos 5, 18-20. Woe unto you that desire the day of the Lord. To what end is it for you? The day of the Lord is darkness, not light. And if a man did flee from a lion, and a bear met him, or went into the house and leaned his hand on the wall, and a serpent bit him, Shall not the day of the Lord be darkness and not light? Even very dark and no brightness in it. Amos is prophesying there that as it stood in Israel at the time, the day of the Lord would be nothing but darkness for Israel. Be nothing but blackness. Be nothing but judgment. So he tells them, Woe unto you that desire the day of the Lord. You better be praying that it doesn't come soon because judgment is on its way. Now Malachi here gives two illustrations of the judgment that God would bring. The first is a refiner's fire. We've talked about the, the illustration of the refiner's fire before. deals specifically with precious metals, with silver and with gold. The refining process is that process whereby the precious metal would be put under a flame. And as the flame melts that precious metal, the impurities of the metal would rise to the top. And the metal would sink to the bottom and they would separate themselves under heat. And then the refiner of that metal would come and he would scrape the impurities off of the top of that metal in order that the metal might be more pure. The gold or the silver might be more pure. But notice that there was a process whereby that gold had to be melted down in order to be purified. Where it had to be put under intense heat, intense pressure. If that gold had nerves, it would not be a pleasant process for that gold to have to go through that refining process. The melting, literally destroying the gold so that it could be remade more pure. There's a second example. Fuller's soap. A fuller was a man who prepared cloth, specifically wool. It is something that you can find some traditional roots back to uh, numerous European cultures as well, obviously, all the way back to Hebrew culture. Fulling was a process whereby cloth was thickened and cleansed in a mill prepared to be used. The modern concept of fulling involves two processes. The first is to scour the cloth for impurities, then to thicken the cloth. During the scouring process, the cloth would be fully cleansed from all impurities. Now, in the case of Hebrew fulling, a fuller soap would be used that literally scoured, scraped the impurities off the cloth as the cloth was being prepared for thickening and stretching and all of those preparations that the cloth would go through. Once again, just as the refiner would have to melt that gold a process that would not be a comfortable process for the gold. 
So too, in order for that wool, in order for that cloth that the fuller would be preparing, for it to be everything that it needed to be, they'd have to scrape that cloth. They'd have to scour that cloth. They'd use that fuller soap and they would have to cleanse that cloth of all of its impurities before it could really be useful. Not a pleasant process for the cloth. A process that would require, if the cloth had nerves, some pain. As it has to be scraped of its impurities. Do you see what God is saying? When he comes, he's coming as a refiner's fire. As fuller soap. Judgment will not be pleasant. But the impurities must be rooted out of his people. And that brings us to our next question. Who was God going to judge? I've mentioned it already and it's just as important as the reality of judgment. God doesn't mention the Gentiles in this passage. We know numerous passages in the Old Testament where God says he's going to judge the Gentiles. This passage is not about them. He mentions first in verses 3 and 4 judgment upon the priests. He says, and he, the messenger of the covenant, shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he shall purify who? Sons of Levi. Not the Amorites or the Hittites or the Canaanites or the Babylonians or the Chaldeans or the Egyptians or the Romans or the Greeks or the Persians. The sons of Levi. And purge them as gold and silver that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. Why is he purging them? He's, he's refining them. The judgment will purify them so that they can offer up a right offering. Following his judgment upon Levi, he will then turn his eyes to the people. Look at verse 5. And I will come near to you to judgment. And I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers and the adulterers and against false swearers and against those that oppress the hireling in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, and that turn aside the stranger from his right. And fear not me, saith the Lord of hosts. Notice what the basis of God's judgment would be. It would not be how religious they were. It would not be how carefully they kept the line-by-line line commands of God. It was not a checklist that he was looking for. They would be judged based upon their hearts toward God and how their hearts compelled their action, how they acted against or toward widows, how they acted against or toward the fatherless, how they acted for or against those who they hired with their wages. Those sorcerers who might go and sacrifice upon the altar, but in secret they were practicing witchcraft. Those adulterers who might talk the good talk on the outside, do all the things that God required on the outside, but within the comfort of their own homes, they were impure. God says He's going to come and He's going to refine some hearts in Jerusalem. Refine some hearts in Judah. Now, as we think about the context of this whole passage, we recognize it's all eschatological. It's all about the last days. It's all pointing to the days when Jesus Christ will come the second time in judgment. And God's people will finally, as Jeremiah 31 prophesies, have that new heart. The judgment being those seven years of tribulation. But before we apply these lessons to our own hearts, and there will need to be a little bit of a separation between 
Judah and Israel and between the church in this regard. Look with me at verse 6. Verse 6 is the basis for God's judgment upon Judah. For I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. Not consumed. Wait a minute, I thought God was talking about judgment. Why is it that when the messenger of the covenant, God himself, will come to his temple, he will begin by judging his own people? Perhaps God's anger? Righteousness? Justice? Those might be the things that come to mind. After all, they've wearied God with their words. It's time for retribution, right? What reason does God give? I am the Lord. I change not. And notice he says, because of this, not you are consumed. He says, you are not consumed. God basis for judgment upon Israel is his unchanging faithfulness. God's judgment is coming in faithfulness to his promises. God will judge them so that they will in turn finally turn to him. So that they will finally accept their Messiah. So that they will finally be able to have the new heart that God had promised to give them in Jeremiah 31 found in Ezekiel all over the place as well, that they would finally be able to live in the new covenant. But before they can do that, God has to purge them. And so, in fact, God's judgment as he comes to judge this nation will be entirely in line with his faithfulness to them. He's judging out of love. God will judge them lest they should be consumed in the consequences of their own sin. And perish from off the earth. God's faithfulness demands that Israel will be a nation of blessing. But he cannot bless them until they are obedient. So he will faithfully chasten them into obedience. Now as we consider a message such as this one. As I mentioned we must be very careful with our application. The church of which we are a part is not Israel. We have not entered into a two-way covenant with God, as we thought about in Sunday morning service last week, whereby God brings us physical blessings and cursings based upon our adherence to a written law. But our God is an unchanging God, and we know from the New Testament that the church is not exempt from judgment either. As we attempt to make application to this message, let's first understand what I am not trying to say to us. I am not trying to tell you as I speak of judgment upon God's people, that if you have accepted Christ as your Savior and are born again, you need to be in fear of eternal judgment. I am not trying to tell you that when God comes back, that He will judge us by our works and throw us into hell regardless of our personal belief in Jesus Christ. I'm not trying to cast any doubt upon our salvation and the reality that we are saved from the lake of fire, that judgment which is to come. God, as he spoke to Israel, was speaking to a nation comprised of both believers and unbelievers. Not everyone in the nation of Israel was a believer. 
God was speaking here of the physical judgment that he would bring upon the nation in which he had a physical covenant that regarded physical blessings and cursings. We can recognize that from scripture. But what we do know about the judgment of the believer is that every man will in fact still be judged according to his works. Though you will, if you are a born-again believer, stand before God one day and the Lamb's book of life will be opened and if your name is found written in the book of life, you will enter into the glory of the Lord. Yet there is a book of works being written. There is a catalog of the things we do upon this earth in heaven. Matthew 16, 27 says this, For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then shall he reward every man according to his works. Romans 2.10 says this, But glory, honor, and peace to every man that worketh good, to the Jew first, and also to the Gentile. Revelation 22.12, in relating that end time, says this, And behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me, to give every man according as his work shall be. So we know that every man will be judged according to their works. We know that judgment will begin with God's own church. In 1 Peter 4, the Apostle Peter is encouraging the believers to rejoice in persecution that they are suffering on the behalf of Christ. And as he does so, notice what he says will begin in verse 12. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you, but rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's suffering, that when his glory shall be revealed ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye, for the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part he is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or as a thief, or as an evildoer, or as a busybody in other men's matters. Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. For the time is come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and sinner appear? Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. What Peter is saying there is, look, one day we will be judged according to our works as well. And judgment will begin at the house of God and God will judge us. And as uh, 1 Corinthians 3 recounts, there will be a pile in heaven. There will be a pile of your works. And those works that you did for eternity will be in that pile as gold, silver, and precious stones. But thrown into that pile as well will be all of those things that you did temporally. All of those things that you did selfishly. All of the time that you wasted. All of the ways in which you lived for yourself. And those are going to be thrown on that pile as wood, hay, and stubble. And in the day of judgment, God is going to judge that pile of works. And his fire, as a refining fire, is going to fall upon that pile. 
And all the wood, hay, and the stubble, all of those things we did for ourselves on this earth, all of those temporal things are going to burn to ashes. And the only thing left will be the gold, the silver, and the precious stones. And God will look in the Lamb's book of life, and your name will be there, and he'll say, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. But on that day there will also be tears. There will be tears as we have recognized that this great momentous pile of all of the things that we did in this life was whittled down so dramatically. From all of the ways that we wasted our time, our money, our efforts, our thoughts, our words. And therein we find our application to this passage. The application for us as the church. We learned what the passage was saying to Judah. What can we learn from it for us? If you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are saved from the wrath of God and from eternal judgment in the lake of fire. Saved yet so as by fire. According to 1 Corinthians 3.15. But Christian, everything you do, everything you think, Everything you say is laid up in a pile in heaven. And while we look at a world around us and we say, where is the God of judgment? When will you judge the wicked God? We often fail to remember that you and I will be judged as well. And when we look at the people around us and we ask, God, when will you judge these liars, these thieves, these proud men? May such thoughts remind us that we ourselves lie. We ourselves have pride. We ourselves covet. We ourselves envy. When we look at a political landscape, and we look at a nation not even at the crossroads anymore but on the path of wickedness unto destruction we say God when will you judge may it be an opportunity for us to search our own hearts may we pray the prayer that the psalmist prayed search me O God and know my heart try me and know my thoughts See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. May we ensure that we are right with God. That when we stand before God, we stand with a conscience cleansed, void of offense. Because judgment will start at the house of God. Let's pray.